ministry of Jesus Christ. One day he was back in his hometown of Nazareth. This is from Luke chapter 4. And he was doing what he had been doing all over Galilee, preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God with him. With him. Pointed to himself this day and said, all of Isaiah's prophecies, right here, it's me. And after doing that, he then preached this to them. He said, there were many widows in the days of Israel, in the days of Elijah, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, Syrophoenicia, to a woman who was a widow. And then Jesus said to them, and there were many lepers in Israel in the days of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Do you remember how Jesus' Jewish audience responded to that preaching, to those words of Christ? Here's the text. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill that the city was built on so that they could throw him off the cliff. Whoa, what just happened there to get them so riled up? Well, in one sense, it was Jesus preaching the sovereignty of God. That riles people right up. That God is free to save who he wants. That doctrine is always an assault on human pride. What Jesus was doing was making sure, making sure that these people that he had come to understood that they had not somehow earned or deserved the mercy of God because their race was Jewish or because of any other reason. Jesus was making sure that they understood no one deserves the grace of God. It is always freely given by God so that nobody can boast. So Jesus was doing that in this little sermon, but he was also doing something else. He was also pointing very, very early in his ministry to the intention of God to extend his grace to all races, all of them, in his gospel. So he was saying to Israel from the beginning, you guys know how God helped that Syrophoenician woman with Elijah? And you know how God healed that Syrian king through Elisha? This is what God is up to in me. The gospel that I have come to bring to you is not for you Jews only. And if you harden your hearts, it will not be for you Jews at all. This gospel is for everyone who would believe. Now, it's true that up to this point in redemptive history, God had worked through one race, one nation, one people in one older covenant. And he had done that for very good and very holy reasons. But built into that rhythm was what? That he had blessed this one people for the good of all the peoples. That he had chosen this one race in order to bless all the races. The problem was that many in the Israel of Jesus' day had not embraced that truth with humility and gladness. I mean, they were supposed to be so humble. God freely chose us and so glad to live 
as a light for the other nations, but that's not what they did. What did they do? Instead, they puffed themselves up with racial pride. They drew these lines, not only between the holiness that God called them to and the sinfulness or the uncleanness of Gentiles, they drew these lines in a way that said, we are better than them. We are more deserving than them. God was smart to choose our bloodline and our race. Our ethnicity makes us superior to others. Do you feel what they did there? It's terrible. They should have never taken the grace of God and turned it into racial pride. They should have been anxiously awaiting the day when their Messiah would come and all the nations would get wrapped up in the covenantal grace of God. If their hearts were right, the words of Jesus this day in their synagogue, in their hometown, would have been so exciting to them. I am here for you, and I am here for the Syrophoenician, and I am here for the Syrian. In fact, I am here for all races. In me, salvation is finally, formally, fully coming to overflow the banks of Israel and flood the world. They should have rejoiced in this news that God was intending finally to unite all races into one people of God. But that's not what they did, did they? What did they do when they heard Jesus talking this kind of talk? They tried to run him off a cliff. Part of what was going on there that day in that village with those people was racism. How dare you talk to us Jews that way? We are Abraham's children. Our bloodline is, is purer and cleaner and holier than others. How dare you step in here and insinuate that a Syrophoenician or a Syrian is on par with us? Does that sentiment sound familiar to anyone in this room? It should, because every heart, every community, every nation, every people group, every race struggles with the temptation to go there. Your textbooks are littered with this attitude and its awful effects in history. You could run down the list. And so what happens is as you hear that passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 4, and as you study history, and as you look at your own heart, you, you ask yourself, Man, racism is so deep-seated and deeply rooted. Even if the Father did intend in the gospel to end it, how, how would Jesus ever get us there to racial harmony? How would he ever get us to a humanity where all the races were unified, one people together, each for the other? Where is the power going to come from to make this happen? The answer is not in anything that we do, but it is in something that Christ has done. And here it is. Racism ends. Racism is killed in the death of Christ. Okay, now no passage of Scripture 
boom, teaches us this more clearly than Ephesians 2. This is what Pastor Matt read to us in the time of Scripture reading. Jesus' apostle Paul is writing during a time of intense and deep, terrible, ugly racial strife. Jew versus Gentile was as bad as any of the myriad of examples we could give of racial tension, including the southern United States in the 1960s in Alabama. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s day, you need to know this stuff, it took its form in something called segregation. This was legally mandated separation of the races at all levels in culture. Separate schools, separate motels, separate diners, separate seating areas, separate restrooms, separate swimming pools, separate drinking fountains, separate everywhere you went, separate walls were up with big signs on them reminding you in case you forgot, no blacks allowed. This was an awful practice. It had an incredibly demeaning and oppressive effect on the black community and it bred hostility between the races. It was the same or worse in the day of this text. Jew versus Gentile. There were religious tensions, right? Over here you had the Jews with their one God and their strict code of moral conduct. Over here, you had the Gentiles in their endless array of gods, and we'll call it a looser code of moral conduct. Over here, it was cultural tensions, different ceremonies, different clothing, different hairstyles, different calendars, different holidays, different educational systems, different everything. And all of this tension and hostility and division was rooted in race. Distinct bloodlines. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham versus any other father. That's the way that some spoke in Jesus' day. Our father is Abraham. We have no other father. And this racial divide, I'm telling you, just seemed insurmountable. There was no way that anybody could ever dream anything could bring these groups together. There would never be racial harmony between Jew and Gentile. And you can feel that thing at the start of the text that Matt read, Ephesians 2. Did you hear it? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers, aliens, separated. This is where the text started, right? Paul said there was a dividing wall of hostility between the races. Picture this. A giant barrier, mistrust, scorn, anger, violence, strife, venom, hatred, hostility is the word in the Scripture. That's where the text started. But where did the text end when Matt was finished reading? Last thing he said to us was, but Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God. What? What? Did the man read that the hostility had ended? That the walls were taken down? That there was peace? That they were one? No longer strangers, no longer aliens, fellow citizens, members of the same household? How did we get from the beginning to the end of that text? How do we get to racial reconciliation? How did God do it? Well, in between hostility and peace comes this. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There it is. The Son of Man has to be killed. Why? One reason. With his shed blood, he will end racism. He will bring the races together. All right, let's talk about how this happens. Whenever we start to talk about racial harmony, one of the beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith that we run to is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that men and women, all humanity was created in the image of God equal. And so there's no room for us to say that one is better than the other. And this is beautiful and beautifully true, and we should preach that thing. But there's another unifying doctrine of the Christian faith, of the scriptures, that brings all races together. And that's the doctrine of original sin, that we are all, whatever our bloodline, we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We are all sinners, desperately in need of some outside agent to to rescue us from God's wrath, rightfully poured out on our sin, to redeem us from this curse. And that agent, that rescuer, that redeemer is Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, the Son of God. In the death of Christ, this single way gets forged to life, to forgiveness, to salvation, to God. One way, and that way is for everyone. And so here's what Jesus does in his death. He comes to save blacks and whites and Jews and Gentiles and Syrophoenicians and Syrians and German Puerto Ricans, and whatever you are. And he comes to save them all the same way, through his blood. And so when we come to God, we come together. There are not two or three or 50 different means of salvation. There are not two or three or 50 different saved people groups. There's one means of salvation for every person from every race because there's one Christ and one cross and at that one cross a new bloodline began and all of us regardless of our race need to get to become a part of that one blood line in other words when Jesus reconciled us to God he reconciled us to each other He reconciled us to God through his blood. He reconciled us to each other, same way, through his blood. The text says it like this, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He reconciled us both to God in one body through one cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
I love that verse of Scripture. Jesus killed racism. Racial pride dies. Racial hostility dies because Christ died. All races to one God through one body on one cross forming one new people. And so as it ends up, we do need an outside agent to end racism. It is not primarily a participatory promise, you guys. It is a finished work, finished on the cross of Christ. Individuals and communities cannot heal themselves. We need Christ crucified in order to be healed. And he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement or the punishment for our sins was upon him. And by his stripes, what's that? His body ripped open. His blood shed. By his blood, we are healed. Reconciliation absolutely can be imposed from the outside in and the top down. From Jesus' blood to your heart. From the cross of Christ to our souls. In dying, in dying, Jesus has stripped away everything that kept you and me apart. I mean, he ended even the possibility of you continuing to cling to race as a point of pride. How can you still be racist when you realize the basis of your acceptance with God is not racial or ethnic superiority? How can you stay there? You can't. If it's the blood of Christ shed mercifully, undeservingly for you, you didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve it, and yet God freely gives it to us the same, we are brothers and sisters. Now, there's no more wall because there's no more pride. There's no more hostility because there's no more clinging to some way that we are better than others. It is just unified, amazed, raucous joy in Jesus together forever. That's it. And that is the end game of racial harmony and of ethnic diversity that Christ has brought for us. God intended to end racism in the gospel. He did it through the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, and he did it, why? For the glory of Christ. It's not for us to look around at each other and how diverse we are and just applaud, oh boy. It's for us to stand together and look up to Christ because of who he is and what he has done. There's no passage of scripture that brings us home more clearly than you, than the one that you heard to open the service today, Revelation 5. John is given this beautiful vision of where this whole end of racial hostility gospel thing is going. And what does he see in this vision? He sees all of heaven singing. Worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Can you guys hear the emphasis on the death of Christ in that text of Scripture? Every tribe, every language, every people group, every 
nation, every race, united. How? Why? Because Jesus was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed a people. And who is it that this ransomed crowd has gathered together to celebrate? Is it themselves in all of their ethnic diversity? Please. It's Jesus. He is the true end of Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision. It is not some man-centered, one-world, global hug fest in which we feel so proud about ourselves. It is not even some secular table of brotherhood where we somehow come together. It's you and me standing together, pointing to the glory of the one who has brought us together. That's the end of racial harmony. Can you feel how this text from Revelation just magnifies the glory of Jesus Christ? I mean, we could run through a a bunch of ways. Let me just give you one. We all know that the strength and the love and the wisdom and the glory of any leader get magnified in proportion to the, the diversity of peoples that he can inspire or she can inspire to follow them with great energy and joy, right? So, I mean, if you can lead a small, uniform group of people who are all the same and thinking the same way, that's one thing. But if, if someone can somehow capture the hearts and minds and souls of a diverse array of peoples, we say, wow, now that person is something unique. We, we feel this struggle every time we elect a president in the United States of America now, right? It's like, congratulations, Barack Obama. 49% of Americans didn't want you to be president. And whoever wins in the other direction, it's the same thing. Okay, this is good, but you just have a small crowd that is for you. Not so with Jesus. How did John say it? Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. It's like he couldn't even get the words right. Including many from every single race On this planet, people who have nothing in common with each other except for this, they have come to see the glory of God in the face of this Savior. If you don't know how to say, worthy are you, in like a thousand languages, one day you will. Because Jesus Christ killed racism so that all nations and all races would revel together in one voice of his glory. God wanted racism to end. He did the work in the death of his son, and he did it for the glory of his son. That's our hope. Okay, now there's a million practical applications to these truths. I I want you guys to work through these in your homes, in your soul care communities, as we shape the life of these churches, Wakefield, Malden, Melrose, together. But let me just go for our hearts to to end today. So I've given you doctrine, and doctrine is always supposed to change your heart. If our heart, as Seven Mile Road Church, does not race at the vision of these texts, I mean, I know you dudes do not say amen, but if you weren't like wanting to say amen a lot during this kind of a sermon, if you are not excited about a vision of a single new bloodline with Vietnamese 
and Tanzanian and Korean and Comorian and Mexican and Brazilian and Italian and Russian and Indian and Syrian and Syrophoenician and German, Puerto Rican mixed in one and white and black and Hispanic and all races. That doesn't excite you. If you don't get pumped at this vision of a kingdom of God that's going to be a place where there will be diverse sights and sounds and smells and instruments and meals and clothes and all of it, if you did not get jacked when you walked in here on New Year's Day and you were being led in worship by a band that had whites and Brazilians and Koreans and Indians... If that doesn't thrill your heart, if there is still any holding on to racial pride, we need to repent. If there's anything in the life of this church that is like the life of those in that synagogue when Jesus came and said, it's you, but it's also Syrophoenicians, and it's also Syrians, and it's anyone who would believe. If you don't love that Jesus' gospel grace is for more than just you and your tribe. We need to repent. We need to. We need our hearts to change. And we need to go after racial harmony and ethnic diversity as Seven Mile Road together to the glory of God. Now that will not be easy work. Would you expect that it would be? If it cost Jesus his life to secure this reality, Why would we think that this is going to come nice and easy to us? It won't. But it's worth the work. If one of the designs of the cross was to reconcile alienated ethnic groups, boom, to each other for the glory of God, what could show off to this world better the glory of the cross than this being a place where racism is dead and dying and there is this sweet selfless, understanding, humble way that we live together, united. We will get there. We're going to work that way and then we will inherit this forever. We will get there, but not by healing ourselves, not, not by doing this ourselves, but by believing and reveling in and walking in the step with the truth of Jesus's gospel. It's the death of Christ that will get us there. This is why Seven Mile Road does not preach racial reconciliation every single week and make it the headline of all that we are. Doing that will not get us there. We will get there and a million other glorious places by preaching Christ crucified, by reveling in the person and the work of Jesus, by singing about his blood shed for sinners. If we make that the center of our church, unless our hearts are as hard as all get out, we will not be able to help but become a racially united, ethnically diverse community. It's built into the gospel. And so repent of racial sin in your heart, believe the gospel of Christ, and watch him do a beautiful work of having this be a sweet and humble and united place. That's my prayer. Let's ask for that together. Father, I pray that you come do this in us and through us. We're in in a unique time, Father. We see that these United States of America have bought into this vision 
of racial equality and ethnic diversity. But this can only come in the forgiveness of the blood of Christ, in the reconciliation to God that brings us together. And so I pray that you keep us steadily focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, as an outworking of that, would you change our hearts and make us an ethnically diverse, racially united people at Seven Mile Road. Forgive anything in us that gets quickly frustrated or skeptical about other races and other ways. Have us have a heart for unity because you died to make this known. And give us a vision for this day that is coming when we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to ransom a people for God from every race. Thank you for killing racism. Kill it in our hearts. Kill it in this church for your glory and for our joy. This is our prayer here and answer our prayer. Amen.